Hi friends, how are you doing? I hope you're having an excellent week and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the podcast where planning has taken admittedly several twists and turns. So sometimes I feel like I forget to introduce myself, so I want to make sure I do. My name is Kelly, and I manage the website justiceformarilynmanson.com. You can also find me over on Instagram at justiceformanson. I recently started a TikTok to share things there as well. You know the drill. All of those links will be on um, the website. So today we're going to be talking about a piece of news that arrived at the tail end of January 2023. Evan Rachel Wood, of all people, with Rolling Stone in tow, broke the news on a Monday morning while the rest of us were enjoying our coffee and planning our weeks. They were breaking the news that a Jane Doe filed a lawsuit against Brian Warner, a.k.a. Marilyn Manson, within the state of New York on claims dating all the way back to 1995 and 1999. Now, I can't say for sure what's been happening behind the scenes, but I can tell you for a fact that Evan Rachel Wood did not meet Marilyn Manson until 2006 at the age of 18 when both attended a party at the Chateau Marmont in Hollywood. So her breaking the news and immediately weighing in on a lawsuit containing allegations from years before she entered the picture does indicate that in some capacity she is connected behind the scenes to this newest lawsuit. Another thing I want to make clear is the lawsuit itself does not bring new claims to the table. These are things that have already been heard and brought to the FBI, but no criminal charges were filed. Nonetheless, this lawsuit takes advantage of a law that lifts the statute of limitations opening a window to try for money in civil cases, even those dating back to nearly 30 years ago. As always, I do encourage you to take time to visit justiceformarylamanson.com and to read the lawsuit in its entirety to fully grasp all the problems within it. But I also issue a disclaimer. The case involves alleged abuse of a minor that can be triggering. I know for me personally, it was not a fun read because I have watched a family member come through the legal system as a survivor of abuse and grooming from the age of 12 on. So it was tough and I had to take it in paces. But whether you have a personal connection to the issues at hand or not, do exercise some caution as the lawsuit does get into some graphic terminology. One other disclaimer to add is that yes, Those familiar with the history of abuse allegations against Marilyn Manson will recognize this lawsuit matches claims made very publicly by name over the last several years. Nonetheless, this woman did file her lawsuit anonymously and out of respect for her right to privacy at this time, I'm going to be referring to her as Jane Doe 2 on both my website as well as, you know, social media because she is the second Jane Doe lawsuit. So that's why she's Jane Doe too. If and when the court decides her case is not confidential, I'll start referring to her by name. But for now, she's Jane. With those important notes out of the way, let's dive in. And to start, we have to discuss what sets this case apart from the others that we have seen up to this point. Yes, Marilyn Manson is, of course, named within the lawsuit, but only on two counts. Four counts are targeting Interscope Records, Nothing Records, a label that was co-founded by Nine Inch Nails frontman Trent Reznor and another gentleman named John Maum, as well as 20 other individuals, organizations, or vendors whose legal identities are unknown to the plaintiff. Jane Doe is suing these members of the music industry, alleging that they willfully, quote, aided and abetted, as well as, quote, encouraged the abuse of minors and women from at least 1995 on. Paragraph 6 of her lawsuit reads, 
defendants Interscope and Nothing Records knowingly, intentionally, willfully, deliberately, and recklessly fostered a pervasive and hostile environment for the purpose of financial gain that utterly disregarded the rights and safety of the band's young fans. As a result, plaintiff has suffered humiliation, shame, and horror that she will continue to suffer for the rest of her life. On the numerous defendants, paragraph 15 of her lawsuit reads, each of the defendants aided and abetted each other defendant. Each defendant knowingly gave substantial assistance to each other defendant, including defendant Warner, who performed the wrongful conduct alleged herein. So a little side note, while Trent Reznor did co-found Nothing Records with John Maum. In 2005, Reznor did say that his involvement with the label is over. Nothing Records also falls under the umbrella of Interscope Records. Another thing that's new about this new civil case is that it came with a press conference. Yes, an actual press conference. On Friday, February 3rd, Jane Doe 2's Attorney Jeff Anderson led a press conference in LA County where he kind of talked about different lawsuits, which I'm not going to go into all of those. We maybe can at a later date, but for timing today, we're not going to be discussing them all. But we do have an official statement from Doe's attorney that I'm going to play for you in a moment. But we also have a lot of really bizarre marketing the law firm has been putting out that kind of stops you dead in your tracks because it's just pretty bizarre. And it, it makes you wonder just what what are they trying to accomplish here? I'm talking about some pretty strange imagery of fans or a boogeyman lurking in the shadows. There's also some strange use of slogans like hashtag eat predators or time's up Manson or it's time. They're not totally consistent about their messaging, so I don't know if they're trying to test out different things just to see what will stick, but it's definitely bizarre. And we have seen several Marilyn Manson cases up to this point, as well as a lot of just Me Too style cases in general. But this is the first time that I'm seeing a law firm put out kind of weird infographics and hashtags in this manner that they're doing. Um, And it's also kind of like a double standard in a way because I have a feeling that if Manson's legal team was doing this, the media and, you know, people on social media and whatnot would be pouncing on them, really mad about it. Like, oh my gosh, can you imagine that his law firm is targeting people like this and not respecting the litigation process and due process and yada yada, but no one's really saying anything about this really strange marketing. Speaking of people's right to due process, though, I will play for you now the clip of Jane Doe's attorney at this press conference. But before I press play, I want to preface by pointing out that he does not use any quote allegedly within his statement where he casts Manson as a supervillain. He kind of just puts it out there as fact. But I have to clarify up front that yes, We know that Manson has been accused of wrongdoing, but he has also complied with multiple local and federal investigations and has never even been charged for a crime of sexual assault, let alone convicted. So how and where attorney Jeff Anderson is pulling his information is, you know, kind of beyond me. It's also a little disheartening because you would hope that an attorney would exercise some level of professionalism or at the very least respect the legal process, but he's not. Anyhow, here's a clip. The first uh, complaint I'm going to hold up that has been filed uh, names on... On the plaint, on the plaint, as the plaintiff, as Jane Doe. And it identifies uh, the rapist to be Brian Warner, also known as Marilyn Manson, who first began to 
to rape her as a youth and then continued into her adult years. And she was not the first and certainly not the only as has been widely reported. And this suit names him and at least two of the industry defendants in it that we believe uh, enabled it to happen. And there are more to come. Worth noting before moving on, I did also reach out to this law firm um, over social media after they had followed and unfollowed me to see if they had anything else to add. Because, you know, I certainly have no vendetta against them, as we're all hopefully just trying to get to the truth of the matter. And they did have some slides during their presentation that I was hoping to get a closer look at and share with you, but they didn't respond. But before moving on, I will say that this Jeff Anderson's law firm is hosting a protest in the LA area on February 23rd called hashtag eat predators. I personally will not be going, but I wanted to share that this will be happening in the event that if you have interest, you can find the location, the time, etc., all on their website and social media. Moving on, Marilyn Manson's lead attorney did not put on a press conference, but he did put out a statement, which is not altogether that unusual for him. We have pretty regularly seen him put out statements here and there through the years when it's relevant to do so. Um, and that could be like charges have been dismissed or the case has been settled or, you know, various different things. But one thing that I immediately noticed from Howard King's statement in contrast to those that we've seen up to this point was just how much more he really had to say because usually he's very brief and to the point with his statements. In terms of Jane Doe 2, he did elaborate a little bit more than we're used to seeing from him. It reads, quote, Brian Warner does not know this individual and has no recollection of ever having met her 28 years ago. He certainly was never intimate with her. She has been shopping her fabricated tale to tabloids and on podcasts for more than two years, but even the most minimal amount of scrutiny reveals the obvious discrepancies in her ever-shifting stories as well as her extensive collusion with other false accusers. If anyone actually compares the vicious lies in the new complaint with the contents of prior interviews this woman has given to the press and on podcasts, the remarkable inconsistencies will demonstrate why this misguided action will not survive legal examination. Brian will not submit to this shakedown and the courts won't fall for it either. So that definitely is without a doubt much lengthier than at least his more recent statements, but Howard E. King is not really mincing words. He's coming out and saying, basically, we don't know her. That's pretty much the bottom line. Think of Mariah Carey, that famous, I don't know her. I don't know her. It's kind of like that sort of a statement, except for taking things even further by saying and acknowledging that, yes, she has shopped her story around to different outlets, which is true. I know I said I was not going to reveal her name right now, and I'm not planning to at this moment, but if you do examine the different accusations that have been lodged against Brian Warner, particularly in February 2021, when several of these accusations were being made, you can compare the stories and find a story that really does match this new lawsuit. Hitting the same time frames and general locations, there's huge differences between the different tales and how her story has shifted. So, 
it's clear that Manson's legal team has obviously been aware of these accusations up to this point. We also know that these accusations were brought to the FBI. And again, the FBI did not pursue any charges. Okay, so I feel like we've reached a point where we just have to start talking about what she's talking about, right? Like we just, let's just get into it, right? So what exactly is Jane Doe alleging? I'm not going to waste a ton of time reading through all the specific nitty, nitty gritty details of the new Jane Doe lawsuit against Manson because I still recommend that you visit justiceformarylandmanson.com and just read through everything yourself because there are also visual elements included within the lawsuit that I think you should take some time to review with your own eyes. But I am going to be covering the basics. Jane Doe claims that she met Brian Warner, aka Marilyn Manson, of course, as well as several of his bandmates at the age of 16 when she was waiting around after a Marilyn Manson concert held September 15th, 1995 in Dallas, Texas. She claims on this night that she was abused, but still continued to talk to him over the phone and online for, you know, a significant amount of time afterwards. And then she claims that even later in 1999, when she was age 19 that she started to spend more time with him in person. She alleges that at that time she attended a whole and Manson concert in LA before the two groups split and from there she went on to see Manson concerts in Texas, Louisiana, Florida, New York, and even the last show of that tour in Cedar Rapids, Iowa before the Columbine tragedy occurred and prompted Manson to cancel the remaining shows. Now, before saying any more, I want to point out two important details that we do know for a fact. First, in 1995, we have Manson in a relationship with his ex-girlfriend, Melissa Romero, who went by the nickname Missy. Missy and Manson met in 1992 and dated into 1997. And if anyone truly knows Brian, it's the woman formerly behind the man. Missy is probably the one person who could set the record straight on just about any of the Manson rumors. The worst thing is, is when, you know, Brian's on tour or whatever, and here I am, I'm out at my local bar and hanging out with my friends or whatever, and then you get this guy that comes out. Hey, you're that girl that goes out with Marilyn Manson. Yeah, whatever. You know, who, who are you? What do you want? I heard that he got his bottom two ribs removed so he could lean down and suck his own dick. Just, did he do that? Did he really do that? Jesus Christ. What do you think? Well, I don't know. I don't know. Th things like that just would drive me crazy. It's like, how can you be so stupid? I'm going to play for you now a clip of Missy discussing how their relationship came to an end after just basically naturally growing apart and at the end of her relationship she and Manson were attending a Smashing Pumpkins Rolling Stone concert and Smashing Pumpkins frontman Billy Corgan lent her an ear of support. The mediator happens to be Billy and he's telling me you know you gotta just let it go you guys love each other leave it at that you know go your separate ways but you know you always have what you had and that's what you always have, pretty much. And that was probably the best advice. And I knew, too, that, you know, this was probably it. But, I mean, we're still friends. I still talk to him. You know, we keep in touch. I always will keep in touch with him. You know, I, re I don't regret anything in the relationship at all. And I'm not bitter towards him because of it. So why not? You know? So. Next up. We can jump to 1999, when Manson was in a long-term relationship with actress and an activist against abuse, Rose McGowan, into 2001. In her memoir, Brave, Rose describes meeting Manson when she was reeling after abuse that she had suffered at the hands of Harvey Weinstein, and Rose describes her time with Manson as generally quite loving. We had so much fun. We truly did. But still, I was plagued with night terrors and post-traumatic stress disorder. The first year we were together, Manson patched me back together after the assault. 
I didn't tell him what had happened for the first few months, but finally he asked a girlfriend of mine, what's wrong with Rose? I was waking up screaming at night, soaking the sheets with my night sweats. My friend told him the truth, and Manson was so sweet with me. Finally, some kindness. He was a very misunderstood person. Even though the media had dealt with controversial musicians like Alice Cooper or Ozzy Osbourne and rational people knew it was all about art performance, with Manson they really bought it. They really thought he spent his nights skinning puppy dogs alive and boiling them in vats of acid while saying, Hail Satan! In reality, the exact opposite was going on. The truth was that at the time when he wasn't creating electrifying music, Manson was painting watercolors of my Boston Terriers while I was ordering glassware from Martha Stewart's online store. We basically hid out from the world at home, totally domestic, when we weren't on the road having mad escapades. I was happy because I could forget about what happened to me. People thought it was bizarre that I was going out with him. When they freaked out about it, I'd think, but you're bizarre to me. This is somebody who's kind to me, who's taking care of me. Manson always saw to my needs and paid great attention to detail, and we fell in love. When I ran off with the Manson Circus, I didn't really work for about three and a half years. We had to worry about death threats and bomb threats and being terrorized online, but at least I didn't have to worry about where my next meal was coming from because I'd saved up some money from acting. It was a blast, and we were madly in love, and anybody else who thinks differently is wrong. It was a pretty legendary relationship, not just in the media. It was a pretty legendary relationship behind the scenes, too. We had a whole lot of amazing. Rose didn't just become Manson's girlfriend and later his fiance. She also became a part of his work. He penned the song Como White off his Mechanical Animals album about her and she even appeared in the song's music video. The music video referenced the tragic assassination of President John F. Kennedy and in it you can see Rose dressed as a Jackie O figure. She's standing on an overpass in her Miracle Mile. I lived in the Miracle Mile section of LA when we first met. He goes on to sing in that particular song about taking pills to make yourself numb and dumb but how all the drugs in this world wouldn't save you from yourself. At the time, I'd started taking medication for my overwhelming depression and panic attacks after the assault. It was a uniquely strange sensation to hear all these people singing along to lyrics that were about my life story, even though they didn't know it. During her time with Manson, Rose spent, really, her time with him, physically with him. That included joining him on tour, including the tour that Jane Doe references within her lawsuit. Here's another clip from Rose's book where she discusses a little bit more of what touring life, as well as her love life with Manson, was like. Touring was both fun and banal. It was especially hard encountering groupies subjugating themselves and letting themselves be used and abused by the guys in the band and the crew just for the sake of being closer to someone famous. At every stop of the tour I was on, women were lining up to submit themselves to abuse, wash, rinse, repeat. One of the guys in the band would zero in on overweight girls, spend all night with them, and propose marriage. Then he'd never call them again and do it the next night. I'd bet these girls have histories of personal abuse, of being valued only for one thing, and they think that by being with someone famous or having a rock star pay them any attention, their lives are going to change. In the face of that, to keep my pro-woman stance alive was a bit of a challenge, but I did. I didn't know enough yet to know that the system is flawed because of men. It was also lonely. Manson and I would be holed up in the back of the tour bus watching The Big Lebowski for the 60th time, while the other guys would be in the front of the bus or hotel doing whatever it was they did. Manson was quite shy at the time, and the guys were nice to me, but grudgingly and only if Manson was around. He didn't mingle much in the public, so I wasn't in danger of groupie girls coming after him. But a lot of the fangirls online hated me because I occupied a space they imagined themselves filling. It inspired a lot of rage towards me, just for existing. On the Hollywood side, I had these idiots thinking I boil cats. Then on the public side, these girls hating me for being with someone they fantasized about. Fun times. I used to think, what's the upside in all of this? Well, 
The upside is that we stuck together. We were like a unit. And he did put on an incredible show. I loved dancing on the side of the stage because the band could rock the house down. Once on my birthday, Manson took me to Italy, to the Tuscan countryside where I was born and raised. I was trying to find the stone barn I was born in on the Duke's property. There's Manson, all 138 pounds, 6 feet 3 inches, dressed in black, wearing big stomper shoes that made him 6'7", looking like a scarecrow with his hat and a leather jacket in the heat of Tuscany, walking over hillsides with me, looking like a deranged Easter egg in a long pink skirt with a yellow shirt, and Petey, his gigantic bodyguard, following closely behind. We huffed and puffed all over the hills, trying to find the barn. At one point, this little kid on a tiny bike passed us and yelled out in his thick accent, Ay, ay, Marilyn Manson! It was surreal and hilarious. Eventually, we found the stone barn. The sister of the Duke of Zoagli now owned the property, Rosa Ariana, my namesake. When I presented myself on her doorstep, I worked up the courage to knock. She came out and started screaming at me in Italian to get off her property, trying to hit me with a broom. I laughed it off as we scurried away. But we found the barn I was born in. I was so touched by him taking me there. Since their breakup, Rose McGowan has continued to speak only positively about her relationship with Manson. Her memoir, Brave, was published in 2018, and even more recently, in December 2022, she addressed her relationship as, again, not being abusive in a Twitter space that she appeared on, hosted by Eliza Blue. At that point, though, she did make some interesting remarks about Evan Rachel Wood supporters. You've stood by many, many survivors, even survivors that weren't being stood by. Do you have a, do you have a position on that or is you just kind of do whatever you, you think is the best? It's, it's really hard. You know, I can't, I, I get a lot of, um, I got a lot of people with Evan Rachel Wood, um, the actress Evan Rachel Wood, uh, who had not, I'm not in, in any camp on that. I'm, I'm not, you know, but I got a lot of bullying from people on, on her behalf. Um, why haven't you, you know, talked about Marilyn Manson? Why haven't you? And all I can say is, you know, for me, I didn't experience that, but also this person hadn't come out and named anything yet. There was nothing to support. For me, it's a case by case basis. And there's just so many that you kind of can't do it all. But I, 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 I would say to the people out there that are supporters of people, don't bully uh, don't bully. Like I was really bullied nastily by her supporters, I would say. And for me, all I can say is, you know, in my relationship with him, that wasn't a factor. I didn't experience that. I hate it when I see, uh, like someone defending someone and saying, well, they never did it with me. So they, these other people must be lying. I don't know. I was not there. I hate anybody suffering. I hate anybody hurting, but I also, you know, I, and I don't understand. And I, and of course not everybody will be telling the truth. That's another component. That's extremely hard to, to deal with, uh, for me just psychologically. Cause I don't understand why the hell anybody would ever want to, uh, wear that mantle. If it's not in fact true, I can't psychologically grasp why you would want that kind of attention. Prior to this Jane Doe lawsuit coming along, it really hasn't necessarily been relevant to talk about Missy and Rose's comments about their relationships with Manson not at all being abusive because in reality Evan Rachel Wood and the others claims were coming from 2009-2011 after Missy and Rose were out of the picture. But Ms. Doe and her attorney Jeff Anderson are giving us a prime reason to listen to Missy who was in a five-year relationship with Manson when Doe claimed she was abused by him in 1995 and Rose McGowan who was engaged to Manson and joining him on tour in 1999 when Doe claims she was following Manson around on the road while also getting abused over a four-week period. Who do you think is giving a more accurate account of who Manson is behind closed doors? These women who dated and supported his life and career on the road for years and continued to say positive things about him for even more years? Or 
a Jane Doe who was suing him, Interscope, Nothing Records, and 20 other unknown identities for as much money and damages as she can possibly get. Just ask yourself, who do you think is telling the truth? On another personal note, this lawsuit against Manson comes at a time when I've actually already been pretty heavily revisiting music of the 90s. And not just listening to old favorites like Soundgarden, but reading books, watching old throwback interviews courtesy of YouTube, viewing some pretty outstanding documentaries, tuning into podcasts from others on that rather special time. Like the 70s, the 90s was a prime for hard rock music and a lot simply would not fly in the age of woke that we find ourselves in today. It's kind of like that saying, you know, well, this didn't age well, or this didn't age well. You know, maybe quite a bit didn't age well, or maybe it was a time where shock value still provided entertainment, unlike in 2023, when everyone is racing to find things to get offended by, and then to share their performative outrage on social media and in clickbait articles online. While Jane Doe is the first accuser to challenge the music industry as a whole within these Marilyn Manson cases, She is certainly not the first to do so. Another case that I've been reading through is one filed by Spencer Eldon. He came out swinging against the music industry in August 2021 when he filed a personal injury suit against members of Nirvana, Universal, Geffen Records, Warner Records, and MCA Music. And if you're sat thinking to yourself, well, I don't know who the heck Spencer Eldon is. No, you're wrong. You absolutely know who he is. He is the baby that appeared on the cover of Nirvana's famous Nevermind album. He was swimming nude in a pool, chasing after a $20 bill on a hook as bait. In his lawsuit, Alden targets the music industry for child exploitation and child pornography. The case was initially dismissed with prejudice in September 2022 for, quote, failure to plead enough facts by a California, said a California judge, but he's since appealed and the case is active today with the parties appointing attorneys and sorting out other preliminary legal matters this month. Paragraph 10 of Alden's lawsuit reads, Defendants used child pornography depicting Spencer as an essential element of a record promotion scheme commonly used by the music industry to get attention, wherein the album covers pose children in a sexually provocative manner to gain notoriety, drive sales, and garner media attention and critical views. Now, obviously Nirvana's album cover has nothing to do with Marilyn Manson or this Jane Doe case, but it is certainly an interesting topic to explore in parallel. Back in the 90s, there was a debate with the art director, the band, and of course the label on whether or not they should be censoring this baby's private anatomy. They toyed around with either photoshopping the image itself or adding a carefully placed smiley face sticker when packaging the album for record stores. Considering you and I can immediately recall this famous album cover in our minds, it goes without saying that the image was released and became widely known as Nirvana was catapulted to global fame. On the subject of the album cover, Kurt Cobain said that anyone who found the photo offensive was probably a closeted pedophile And I have to agree. Spencer Eldon himself also didn't take issue with the album cover for most of his life and was pretty proud of it. That is, of course, until he sought damages in his August 2021 lawsuit and is continuing to seek damages in his current appeal. But Nirvana isn't the only band that used children as part of their marketing in the 90s. Korn did with their Follow the Leader album, Offspring did with Americana, Smashing Pumpkins did with Siamese Dream, Stone Temple Pilots did with Purple, and of course Marilyn Manson as well with his Smells Like Children album. Does this inherently mean that all of these bands are pedophiles or a using children in any way? No, it's entertainment. When Roald Dahl wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, he wasn't actually blowing a child up as a blueberry or condoning child abuse in Matilda. And we don't even have to get into all the feature films and TV shows that have explored storylines centered around the abuse of children or just children in general. Do we have to like 
the themes these albums, books, or movies present to the world? No, not necessarily. Of course not. But I think we can all agree that there is a separation between entertainment and actual crimes of abuse. And that's the difference. Let's take a breath. We've covered a lot. This is almost like an intermission. And we're going to dive into more of the discussion relating to the music labels in general and not just Marilyn Manson. So let's talk about symbols. In addition to this Jane Doe lawsuit alleging horrific abuse done by Brian Warner and Marilyn Manson to Ms. Doe at the age of 16 and age 19, it also falsely states that his marketing and even one of his tattoos are symbols of pedophilia. The lawsuit references a list of symbols that the FBI put out several years ago that are used in jewelry and other merch materials by pedophiles, which I think we can all agree is disgusting. Pedophilia is wrong, undeniably wrong, 1000% wrong, and we have also very recently undeniably seen that symbols of pedophilia are able to make their way into marketing materials, much like the controversial Balenciaga ad campaigns that featured books and other materials as set decor that explicitly reference sexual child abuse. What attorney Jeff Anderson is saying about Marilyn Manson's marketing materials in the 90s is not the same, though. It's not the same thing as this Balenciaga situation. The first example he cites is a flyer promoting a concert back in the early 90s. This design features a sketch of a zombie-like Manson holding skulls with various doodles like stars, dots, a scribble in the background as finishing touches. Anderson claims that one of the small scribbles matches the quote little boy lover logo that the FBI had identified as a symbol of pedophilia. However, it does not. It's not a match at all. For one thing, the scribble that Anderson is looking at is facing the wrong direction and it's not even the right shape. The little boy lover logo is triangular where Manson's little scribble is circular. And I dare say that we have all at some point or another drawn scribbles like this on our notepads in class over the years or when a pen is running out of ink, etc. Like it's actually kind of ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a reach to say that it's the same design. Jane Doe's attorney also falsely accuses Manson of having the quote little girl logo that the FBI had identified as a symbol for pedophilia as well. Anderson points to a heart tattoo on Marilyn Manson's wrist as a red flag, but yet again, it does not match the FBI's logo. Manson's tattoo was actually inspired by the 1935 horror film Mad Love. Now, I'm not sure if this is just a happy coincidence or a sign of who has helped put this lawsuit together, but Manson actually got this heart tattoo on his wrist at the exact same time as Evan Rachel Wood got a mad love heart tattoo on her thigh with a lightning bolt honoring David Bowie. And Evan Rachel Wood knows this is a Mad Love-inspired tattoo, and she even told the Associated Press as much in September 2007. She described to them the tattoos that she and Manson received by saying, we both got black hearts. It represents Mad Love, end quote. Pretty succinct and to the point. Thank you, Evan. Moving on. So over the span of the 36 pages, this Shane Doe lawsuit does make accusations of abuse, misrepresents doodling and tattoos as trademarks of pedophilia, and complains that there were many themes relating to children as indicating criminal activity. But on top of all that, I just wanted to run down a few points pretty quickly that the attorney um, argues that I find rather questionable. One, an artist is not responsible for the actions of their fans. I'm going to repeat that. An artist is not responsible for the actions of their fans. I think we can all agree that there are bad seeds on the side of every issue under the sun, and that definitely relates to stan culture. I have no doubt in my mind that Marilyn Manson fans or Motley Crue fans or Justin Bieber fans or fans of really any other artist or celebrity at times will cross the line. I've seen it. You've seen it. We've all seen it. But I also think we can acknowledge that the inappropriate behavior of any one fan is not 
the responsibility of the artists themselves nor the music label. That is simply ludicrous. Everyone is accountable for their own actions. So if any fan harasses or goes to the extremes of making, say, death threats against another person, they are responsible for the consequences and them alone. We have apparently gotten so far removed from personal accountability in this big race towards victimhood that somehow Jeff Anderson and others because he's not alone here, thinks that logically it makes sense to put this onto Manson or Interscope or Nothing Records or 20 others who we haven't even known their identities yet. But bottom line, if this Jane Doe was on the receiving end of any online abuse from any fans of Marilyn Manson or any other artist, that is on that particular fan themselves and no one else. Two, Throughout this complaint, Jane Doe and her attorneys repeatedly harp on the fact that Manson's concert in the 90s said for all ages on marketing materials, as if that's some sign to the world that it's a pedophile-friendly event. They kept harping on it, the fact that concerts would be open to all ages. Well, I have a request for them. I would like for them to please identify a concert that is not for all ages, because it seems to me, I don't recall ever getting ID'd when purchasing concert tickets on Ticketmaster. Yes, we've seen clubs that are restricted as age 18 and above or 21, but that's the decision of the individual business owner and not the artist or label. I think it's fair to say that no reasonable person would anticipate a Marilyn Manson concert in the 90s to be flooded with four-year-olds, but hey, even if it was, is that a crime that they attended a concert? Really? Hmm. And next, negligence. This lawsuit spends two counts walking through all of the ways that a music label is negligent in this case and how the labels are negligent when promoting an artist that hasn't even been charged or even convicted of a crime. The lawsuit itself reads that the label should, quote, Defendant Interscope and Nothing Records had a duty to have policies and procedures in place to protect fans. Wait. You mean like security? Because I'm pretty confident that security was present at these concerts. And in fact, Jane Doe herself even discusses this in a podcast, as well as the presence of police at one point. The lawsuit also reads, quote, Defendant Interscope and Nothing Records should have known Warner was a danger to minors and children. To which I kind of have to ask the question, how should they have known? What charges and convictions of abuse did he have to his name? None. And he still has none. The complaint goes on to say that Interscope negligently failed to supervise Warner, who, let the record show, was a grown adult at the time, and that Interscope should have known of abuse, but how? How should they have known? Without a police report or any criminal charges, or and certainly no criminal conviction on record, how would this label or any label know that abuse was occurring and to cover it up? I have no doubt in my mind that the entertainment industry has its flaws, and we have seen that repeatedly over the years, but I feel like this negligent argument that Anderson is making is really kind of overreaching and I just don't see how an artist who is not charged with anything supposedly abusing different people who have not filed police reports I'm just not clear how this law firm feels that the label was in the wrong and I get it hey like we we all hate big companies, right? But in the battle of David and Goliath, whose side are you on here? Are you on David, Jane Doe's, or Goliath? And I don't even have necessarily a definitive answer. Just ask yourself that. The truth is, when I started the Justice for Marilyn Manson podcast, you have to bear in mind that we were already in the litigation process with multiple other Marilyn Manson cases. And before I started this podcast, I had invested weeks and months of research into the claims and parties at play before forming my opinion. And I've always said that my opinion is subject to change by the weight of evidence, if there is evidence, because I certainly subscribe to reality. 
we have not yet seen any evidence to date that Manson has actually abused any of these women accusing him, but if evidence came to light, I'm certainly not going to deny that. But this new Jane Doe case, it's new. It was new to me, same as it's new to you right now. When it arrived on Monday, January 30th, I really wanted to make sure that I sat down with an open mind and read through it carefully because that's how every fresh new lawsuit should come into play. We should be looking at these cases individually with fresh eyes. All that said, after reading the 36 pages, now four times, I have come to the conclusion that this lawsuit is kind of insulting. Reading through it, I found myself really curious if they had to shop this case around to different law firms before landing on one that would pick up the case. Or was Jeff Anderson connected to this because he had already worked on a project with Amy Berg, the director who directed Evan Rachel Wood's Phoenix Rising documentary that's currently available on HBO. All of this seems to be connected, which of course only brings to mind Manson's own lawsuit that he filed against Evan Rachel Wood and Ilma Gore, who, if you're not familiar with Ilma Gore, hop back a couple episodes where I talk a lot more about her. But within his lawsuit, he is alleging a conspiracy against him. And this is now yet another lawsuit that is connected to all the other ones that we have seen. But in this lawsuit in general, I found some stuff really particularly insulting. I found it insulting to the legal system, insulting to the profession of being a lawyer, insulting to record labels, insulting even to Jane Doe herself as it removes any level of agency or ability from her to make her own choices. I found it insulting to Me Too activist and former fiance of Rose McGowan to insinuate that she would be present with abuse of this nature occurring and not doing anything about it. I found it insulting certainly to Marilyn Manson, who is a highly intelligent person. I also found it insulting to the FBI's efforts to misrepresent their findings on these symbols that pedophiles have been using. I found it insulting to the general public through this trashy media campaign that the law firm is leading and really assuming that the public has no level of intelligence whatsoever. The lawsuit really comes off as an insulting legal document. And that's just me. You might feel differently. But the grammatical errors that are weaved throughout it, the poorly executed press conference that also had grammatical errors in its visual aids, as well as just generally being highly unprofessional. As an outsider looking in, this does not have a good look for this attorney, Jeff Anderson, to get up there and not represent due process. We have seen due process obliterated in the media and by others online, but to see a licensed attorney stand up in a live stream press conference that anyone around the world could tune into with grammatical errors on a PowerPoint presentation and to kind of take this political grandstanding without any evidence or carefully using language like allegedly or that sort of thing. It's something I don't quite recall seeing before. And all of this is coming at a very interesting time because let's face it, these accusations were lodged against Marilyn Manson two years ago. And since we have seen multiple criminal investigations in LA County and by the FBI in multiple states with no criminal charges filed. So we are two years into this. And the media is waking up and saying that this is not exactly as they initially thought that it was. And the public is starting to wake up too. So generally speaking, I do feel like this lawsuit kind of comes at a time where it's insulting to me and it's insulting to you that this is the type of case our tax dollars are going to be wasted on because this has become now a federal case. Do you feel good that our court clerks and our judges and our bailiffs and everyone who works within the court system is going to have to waste hours of time on this? Read the lawsuit and ask yourself that and hey, maybe you do feel good about it. 
But given what this individual has said and done through the years and how her story has changed, this case does not seem set up to succeed. Can things change? Sure, absolutely. The law firm could file a follow-up legal document that's super compelling with, with great evidence attached, but from what we're seeing in these 36 pages, as well as their social media efforts, their press conference, their upcoming hashtag eat predators protest, it's really all a disappointing way to seek money at a moment within the Me Too movement when the pendulum is starting to correct itself. And that is something that I kind of want to dedicate an entire episode to because I find it a very interesting debate. What is the appropriate balance? I want to be clear. I don't think the Me Too movement is a bad thing. I do not. I think it has been largely positive, but we have to find a balance between hearing and supporting victims of abuse while also respecting the accused right to due process. And honestly, to Jane Doe, I have to say that I'm sorry. I can audibly hear the pain in her voice when she speaks. She is clearly somebody who, by her own admission, has, is unwell and troubled. And so I have a lot of empathy for her there. I really do. And I actually feel like she is being used by her attorney with his own agenda. And of course, now by Evan Rachel Wood, who has hers. But at the end of the day, the litigation process is painful. And if they truly expect this to go to trial, which I mean, I think we can imagine that they are after a settlement instead, but to even go down this road, to put her out there, to put her through this litigation process when she's clearly in a fragile state of mind already and have every aspect of her life examined under a microscope and by different attorneys, I just feel bad for her. Yes, she's a grown adult and entered into this, but I just don't really feel like her attorney is really representing her best interest. Unless, of course, it's all about money, which... Maybe it is. I just, I feel like this is going to be a painful process for her. Now that I have talked way too long, I'm going to wrap up this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And if you made it this far, I especially thank you. So this lawsuit's not going away. It's here and we're going to have to deal with it. So stay tuned for more updates on it. Definitely visit justiceformarylandmanson.com. Read, read the lawsuit within my Google Drive. Look at the visual aids. Look at what the law firm is saying are symbols of pedophilia, form your own opinions about it, and stay tuned for the next episode where I'm hoping to keep things a little bit more brief. Thank you again for tuning into the podcast and keeping an open mind. In between episodes, find much more information and updates at justiceformarylandmanson.com. There you can also find links to join my monthly newsletter, which will provide case updates for you straight in your inbox, as well as, of course, links to social media and a whole lot more.